1: Hi guys, Liz Wheeler here. We sat at NatCon in Miami, Florida about a couple weeks ago and interviewed so many of the fabulous speakers that we are still dropping these interviews. This is one of my favorite ones. I sat down with the opinion editor at Newsweek, Josh Hammer. He's a constitutional law attorney. He hosts the Josh Hammer Show, and we talked about big tech. Now. I know, big tech isn't always the most interesting topic in and of itself. I always say it's critically important, but it's really boring. And I think that's actually how we prefaced the interview. We were laughing about it before we sat down when I said, all right, let's try to make a boring topic interesting, because it needs to be talked about. One of the things that is not often discussed when it comes to big tech is how to take the conglomeration of different solutions and package them into an effective strategy to actually stop big tech from what they're doing. So that's what Josh. And I talked about, we came up with five solutions that if they're all implemented at the same time would actually solve the big tech problem here. Big tech problem obviously being collusion with the mainstream media and specifically the government against conservatives just for speaking just for speaking about conservative opinions, whether that's on transgenderism or election integrity or whatever else it is, January 6th perhaps. And one of the most interesting things, I think you'll agree with this, is Josh made an argument that I had not heard before. He made an argument about Section 230, not just an argument that, oh, our legislature should should get rid of this, that it should be reinterpreted. Josh says that Section 230 might actually be unconstitutional the way that it is interpreted, meaning a solution to Section 230 could come from the courts, no legislature necessary. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. It's hopefully interesting and extremely informative. It's really a roadmap for how we as conservatives can once and for all stop just complaining about big tech and do something to take care of the problem. So enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Liz Wheeler Show. I'm Liz Wheeler. We are here in Miami, Florida at NatCon 3. And sitting with me is Josh Hammer of Newsweek, also the host of the Josh Hammer Show. And of course, my good friend, Josh, good to see you.
2: Liz, thanks so much for this. It's always a pleasure to see you.
1: Um, Okay, so let's continue the conversation that we were having immediately prior to this. (laughs) This is what always happens when we sit down, we start having a conversation. And then we remember we're supposed to have it on air. Um, You've written two columns that I think all conservatives should be paying attention to, related to big tech, related to the monopoly that we are facing that is aimed at stifling conservative voices in our country. So first of all, Let's go to the state of Missouri, which is where you focused, and on what the Attorney General of the state of Missouri, Eric Schmidt, is doing related to investigating whether big tech has actually violated a law or just violated morality with the censorship of of conservatives and Republicans. Tell me about that.
0: plus. Yeah. So
2: it, Eric Schmidt's a very good attorney general. He's one of the best attorneys general out there from my perspective. So he and Jeff Landry, his counterpart in Louisiana, back in May, filed this two-state lawsuit basically seeking to expose the extent of collusion between the Biden administration and the big tech oligarchs. And what Eric Schmidt did was, you know, within the past couple of weeks, he released this pretty must see twitter thread where he goes in detail he, he releases these emails that they have discovered as a result of this litigation through subpoena through this through the discovery process they have a bit of names redacted obviously but in the course of these emails you see very very explicitly confirmed what a lot of us were expecting for the past year and a half since Biden took office which is they have been working hand in glove with meta with facebook with twitter with google to censor "quote unquote" COVID misinformation, I mean, some of these emails between the Biden administration and the Facebook.com or Meta.org, whatever the heck it is, between those email addresses, literally show that they are doing—they were holding weekly, monthly emails, and they were naming names. I mean, some sometimes they were literally naming names as to who was spreading "quote unquote" misinformation. That revelation, that that Twitter, that tw- Twitter thread from Eric Schmidt came right on the heels of this other excellent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal from Vivek Ramaswamy and Jed Rubinfeld, the Yale Law Professor, where they show, I think, through pretty clear and convincing evidence that Twitter specifically worked directly with Biden administration to de Alex Berenson, who was kind of ground zero of all the regime's wrong think when it comes to all things COVID-related, vaccines and all that. So it's it, it bad stuff. Unfortunately, it confirms a lot of what I think we've suspected for a while now. And personally, I think back to July 2021, back when Jen Psaki was still the White House press secretary before we got this current, awful Korean Jean-Pierre, however you pronounce her name. But when Jen Psaki was there in July 2021, at least I can distinctly remember this one time where she kind of just let, she let the the cat out of the bag. She was speaking to the to the White House press corps and she started bragging about how the Biden administration was trying to tamp down COVID misinformation. It's the same thing. I don't want to That's get- That's the
1: at. Dirty Dozen comment, right? Exactly. There are like these top purveyors of misinformation that are on some White House blacklist. Exactly. That's really creepy stuff.
2: It's totally creepy. Like You know what it reminds me? I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but it reminds me exactly of Mark Zuckerberg's recent revelation to Joe Rogan, which is how, how the FBI basically not so subtly threatened Facebook to you know algorithmically derank and censor and shadow ban the, uh, the dissemination of the Hunter Biden laptop story in October 2020. When the FBI, when Jen Psaki, when these government people kind of wag their finger and they kind of give an implicit quid pro quo, like they, they implicitly threaten you if you don't take their action. First of all, that's unconstitutional. First of all, that is that that is literally unconstitutional. Under pretty well established Supreme Court case law. Take us through that. Sure. So um, those same two authors, actually Vivek Ramaswamy and Jed Rubenfeld, their predecessor op-ed to the one that, that happened last month in August, it was a fabulous op-ed. I cannot recommend the viewers or uh, uh, the, the viewers read enough. It was back in January 2021. It was entitled "Quote Save the Constitution from Big Tech," and they really just walk through how the Supreme Court has consistently time and time again said, so for example, in a 1971 or 73 case, or in an early 1970s case called Norwood versus Harrison, the Supreme Court said that it is axiomatic, it is self-evident that the government cannot immunize purportedly private actors to do that, which the government itself cannot do. So put another way, you know, Section Two Hundred and Thirty actually happens to do exactly that. By the way, they, they literally taken take it at face value, or at least the way that the courts have interpreted Section Two Hundred and Thirty. Section Two Hundred
1: and Thirty unconstitutional.
2: It is unconstitutional the way that the courts have interpreted it. So if we really want to get legal nerdy here, there's actually a kind of constitutional interpretation called the uh, the doctrine of constitutional avoidance, which basically means that judges should construe statutes to be reconcilable with the constitution and not incompatible with it. It's, yeah, kind it's of, like
1: what Roberts did with Obamacare, right?
2: Exactly. That's, that's that doctrine taken to its extreme logical conclusion, which...
1: Illogical I, conclusion. Right, maybe. exactly.
2: But for reasons of you know, a more prudential, we might say, application of constitutional avoidance doctrine, judges should much more narrowly construe the Section 230 immunity because it's kind of broad, sprawling immunity, which the courts have generally held over the past 15, 20 years. That would be unconstitutional under Supreme Court case law, yes.
1: Do you think the current Supreme Court would declare it to be unconstitutional if a challenge to it reached their bench?
2: I'm not sure. It's a, it, it, it's, a, it's, it's a good question. The problem, I think, is that Clarence Thomas is probably the only justice so far who has like expl- explicitly written on this issue. He had a fabulous concurrence in this April 2021 case called Tuesday Biden versus Knight First Amendment Institute, where he actually really talks about Section 230. He talks a lot about common carrier regulation, which I think is only going to get more traction. I think. Frankly, that's kind of where our movement kind of has to go when it comes to these big big tech oligarchs i am not particularly happy about that, but it kind of thats
1: my viewpoints on that have changed in the past couple of years. I used to be opposed to that, but now that I see the reality of what it is i'm not I'm not sure what the other solution is
2: right I mean here's the problem so common carrier regulation to kind of go like full like uh you know common law one one so it's it, it, it's it's not a, it's, not, it's really not that scary of a doctrine I mean this is kind of a venerable English common law doctrine going back to fifteen hundred sixteen hundred so the way that the great English common lawyer Sir Matthew Hale kind of summarized what common carriage is, is you immunize a purportedly private actor's conduct to a certain extent if that actor's conduct is so clothed in the public interest that you have to regulate it on non-discrimination grounds. So put another way, you give this private company some sort of immunity in exchange for a non-discrimination principle. The railroad companies are kind of a classic example of that. So the railroads are are given various types of tort law immunity, and they can't discriminate on customers. But when it comes to modern common carrier application, it's not just the railroads. So the phone companies are regulated as common carriers under Title II of the 1934 Commun- Communications Act. ISPs, inter- internet service providers. I mean, ISPs are common carriers. So frankly, I look at kind of the landscape that we're in right now especially what happened to Parler back in January, 2021. You know, when Parler was nuked, as my good friend, Rachel Bovard wrote in a great op-ed for me in Newsweek. After Parler was nuked, which clearly to me smacked of collusion between Apple, Amazon, and Google in particular, that to me is when the build your own Facebook, build your own Google talking point died. Yeah. So from there, once we saw there, what are our options? I mean, you know, it has to be some sort of combination of antitrust and common carry regulation. And to me, I think, at this point, I mean, there's really no compelling argument as to why Facebook and Google, at least Facebook and Google, maybe Amazon and others, should not be regulated the same way that the ISPs are regulated.
1: I think some conservatives are hesitant about getting on board with the idea of making big tech a common carrier because we're worried about jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire, that there's nothing worse than a private corporation acting against the interests of their users. The Well, the only thing worse is a government acting against the interests of their citizens. So. How is that avoided if the big tech is made to be a common carrier?
2: Well, if, it, if big tech is actually made a common carrier, and really in particular here, I'm, I'm most focused on on Facebook and Google, probably Google actually, Google's interesting. I mean, Google, the thing here is that antitrust and common carrier, I think are both interesting remedies to our various big tech woes, but they're kind of mutually exclusive. So basically, put another way, if you use antitrust, kind of old school Teddy Roosevelt fashion to kind of break up Amazon or Google, then you necessarily should be less willing to slap common carrier regulation on because it'll be smaller, or less powerful, and so forth, right? So I think these are both very powerful remedies. It kind of just depends on which remedy or which suite of remedies is right for which specific platform. Facebook in particular, I have said for the past couple of years, is really the perfect, the, the quintessential example from my perspective of what common carrier regulation should be used for because Facebook, unlike Google or Amazon, well, maybe Amazon to a less to a lesser extent, but definitely Facebook. Unlike Google, the value from a user, from a consumer perspective, for Facebook is derived from what antitrust scholars call network effects. It's the idea that all your friends are on it. So if you use antitrust, by definition, you know you if you friends, Facebook as a company kind of loses its value, right? So that's kind of a quintessential company that to me should become a carrier regulated, or I should say regulated as common carrier. And I, I I guess to answer your question more directly there. What we're talking about here is a non-discrimination principle as far as the algorithms cannot discriminate based on kind of the political viewpoints, the religious viewpoint, things of that nature. You can't be nuked from your account for having dissenting viewpoints. Given the, sta- given the status quo, given what we're facing right now, especially in the aftermath of this you know, really re- revealing email uh, chain that, that that Eric Schmidt revealed in that Twitter thread, given what we're facing now and the extent to which the ruling class is cracking down on conservative, dissenting, wrong thing voice, I'm not entirely sure exactly what we have to lose. Because again, the arguments, uh, I think, against uh, slapping common carrier regulation is that you're implicitly conceding the premise that this company is here to stay, right? No. So you, you don't regulate them as a common carrier unless like that, that company, again, to kind of use the Matthew Hale old school common law language, is cloth in the public interest. Well, what about the
1: interest? What about the industry, though? What if it's not the specific company that you are positing will be here to stay with the industry because big tech is here to stay even if you know facebook maybe someday will go the way of my space who knows yeah i mean look
2: if you look at the top companies the new york stock exchange based on market cap i think like five of the top six or six of the top seven i mean or at least like five or six of the top ten it's been you know it's been shifting over the past few months as the market is kind of tanked obviously but a, a shockingly high percentage of the largest companies in america are silicon valley based technology companies so this industry is not going anywhere. I mean, you know, this, this is kind of Peter Thiel's, you know, lead uh, keynote address here uh, at, on the first day of NatCon 3. I mean, he talked about how the technology industry got started in California, how it's not going anywhere. And frankly, Peter's argument, and he knows it's better than anyone else, obviously, being the kind of OG PayPal mafia, is that the technology industry pro- proliferation has actually been horrible for your former state of California. So uh, I agree. I don't think the technology companies as a whole are going anywhere. But I really do think at this point, I mean, Facebook. In particular i think like 80 percent of americans have uh, american adults have a, have a facebook it, it's it's really crazy
1: yeah it's super crazy I mean, for people like
2: me and me like we spend more time on twitter because that's where all the people are talking but the percentage of people who actually use twitter is is really quite low. i think it's like 25 to 30 percent or most or something like that so fa- f- facebook really does kind of strike me as kind of a quintessential comment carrier google or amazon are kind of more interesting antitrust problems i actually i actually wrote a long essay for American Affairs Journal, which one of my absolute favorite publications. I wrote a long essay for them last year, where I kind of concluded that antitrust was the right remedy for Amazon for various reasons. But I do think common carriers that conservatives at a bare minimum have to start talking about it. and It's, you know, it's kind of like a more nap more nationalist mm-hmm. kind of remedy. So well,
1: that's one of the fun things about this conference, by the way, is that we share an acknowledgement of what the problem is, we come with slightly different solutions. Sometimes it's just difference of nuance. And then we debate those nuances on the panels. That's what's really fun. If this won't creep you out, I wanna quote your article to (laughs) you, to your face. (laughs) You
2: you never creep me out, Oh,
1: well, I don't know about you, but I do not like um, hearing a quote like of my own read to my face, but we're gonna run that risk, okay. I'm okay
2: with quotes, I hate hearing my own voice.
1: I promise we won't do that (laughs) until it airs, of course. You sound great though. Okay, so going back to what's happening in Missouri, the Attorney General, Eric Schmidt, who's also by the way, running for Senate, Uh, He'll
2: be a great senator if he was. He's top-notch.
1: Yes, definitely. Um, Okay, so he found these emails and did this thread showing collusion between the Biden administration and big tech, specifically Facebook and Facebook parent company Meta. And this is... I I just want to give an idea of how many people at the Biden administration were involved in this. This wasn't some individual isolated incident because that's a favorite tactic of the left right to say oh it's just one rogue staff no no this is what you write you say according to schmidt the biden department of justice has since missouri and louisiana's lawsuit was filed identified 45 federal officials who have interacted with social media companies on misinformation what's more meta facebook's parent company pinpointed 32 additional biden functionaries with whom it communicated and youtube a google product identified 11 such flunkies with whom it communicated.
2: Yeah, I mean, those statistics obviously tell all that you need to know, right? I mean, this is not like an isolated incident. What's more than that, I think this was a, the emails that Schmidt unveiled was across like, at least like five or six different agencies. I mean, everyone from HHS, to the White House itself, to the Department of Treasury, various kind of cybersecurity agencies deep within the bowels of the, of the deep state. So this was, no, this was definitely not an isolated incident. But again, it makes sense. I mean, I, I I always come back to this this one incident in July 2021 where Jen Psaki is just there kind of yelling at the Washington press court. She's like, trust us, we are cracking down on COVID misinformation. Well, what do you know? I mean, as I said in that very column that you, were, that you were kind enough to read, I think it was like one of the emails that Schmidt revealed, the timestamp on that was like two weeks after Jen Psaki said this. Well, you know, put two and two together. It's really not that hard to figure out what's happening here. So right? go
1: back to the Supreme Court precedent about public-private I don't even want to call it collaboration, it's collusion, um, between the government weaponizing private industry to do what the government is not allowed to do. Is this ample proof of that, that could be, that could be taken to our judicial system?
2: I think so. I mean, personally, yes, I I think so. I'm not sure how else to read this email chain, right? Um, so there's all sorts of constitutional problems here. I mean, kind of what we were discussing earlier. I mean, like there is like this long history where the Supreme Court says over and over again, the federal government cannot give statutory immunity to try to induce private companies to do the federal government's dirty work for it. So
1: would the statutory immunity be section 230? Exactly. Exactly. So someone like Alex Berenson, I know he's been reinstated on Twitter, but someone like Alex Berenson would be the party that was that was harmed, the party that would have standing and he could sue the federal government for colluding with private industry or sue private industry for colluding with the government?
2: Standing is is, is thorny, to be, and to be totally on you. To be totally honest with you, it's been a little while since I've dusted off my federal courts casebook, my, my third year of law school, at the University of Chicago. Uh, and, and traditionally speaking, it should be known that conservatives actually are a little more hawkish, you might say, on standing. So Anthony Scalia was a, was a great example of this. Scalia would kind of scoff the notion that all sorts of kind of putative plaintiffs might have standing. So conservatives have traditionally been a little Uh, more reluctant to kind of let fringe theories of standing get into federal court. This, by the way, taken to its logical conclusion was kind of the 2007 case, Massachusetts versus EPA. Just this absurd case, one of the most absurd cases I've probably ever read where the court granted standing to people in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to basically sue that their shoreline was receding for global warming purposes. It was truly insane. So anyway, I'm not comparing what you just said, Alex Barrington, to that, because uh, he would have- well, what
1: well, what's, the proper, what's the proper recourse then? Would it be a, a state attorney general that files that lawsuit instead of an individual?
2: Lawyering on our side tends to be very creative. So I'm sure you probably could, could get like an Alex Barrington type to kind of get in there. But for the time being, I mean, Obviously, you know, Eric Schmidt and Jeff Landry have this lawsuit going on. So the standing hurdle seems to be a little easier to clear on behalf of a state. Um, but I, I, I don't think it's inconceivable that someone who has been wrongfully deplatformed would not necessarily have standing. I mean, it would be, it would be interesting kind of standing analysis. But I, I think as of right now, it's probably easier to go through the state route, which is what we see in Missouri and Louisiana.
1: And the reason that I'm asking these nitty gritty process <laughs> questions is because we recently saw the Biden administration, President Biden signed that executive order canceling student loan debt. It, right. Hate that phrase, quite a euphemism. But there's not really a right. good way to litigate that. We all right. know it's unconstitutional. The Biden administration knows it's unconstitutional. Nancy Pelosi last year said Biden didn't have the unilateral authority to do that. Right. Only Congress could do that if they if they pass legislation. Biden can't simply erase student loan debt. And he can't redistribute it. He did it anyway, because it's not easy to challenge. It right. might be easy to challenge politically, meaning running advertisements, using that as a talking point, right. fomenting the fact that so many people on both sides of the aisle, actually, are very unhappy about that. But It's not easy to fix from, a, from an appeal standpoint, standpoint, from a, a legal standpoint. And that's my question with this, is I think a lot of people, myself included, understand the threat of big tech now. They know that it's not just oh, they're kicking off Alex Jones, and maybe Alex Jones shouldn't have said that. And It's too bad that he got kicked off, and that's unfair, but whatever. They understand that big tech is truly a threat to free speech in America. They are the arbiters of what conversations can be had. They arguably impacted the outcome of the 2020 election with what the FBI did with Facebook. You mentioned this before. Mark Zuckerberg on Joe Rogan said the FBI came to us and said, this is Russian disinformation. These are the elements of it, and Facebook obeyed they censored the hunter biden laptop story if democrat voters had known about that democrat voters themselves admit they might have changed their vote that is more meddling in a in a presidential election than anything the republicans have been accused falsely accused of doing um and i think a lot of us just sit here and wonder okay we understand what's happening here and how bad this is what a threat it is but what do we do
2: I mean, we gotta get our hands dirty. I mean, you know, the time for kind of just like spouting platitudes is over. I mean, I I, I think the antitrust and common carrier regulation are our most two potent t- tools right now. Personally, I don't understand why antitrust reform has not already happened. To be honest with you, because this is actually a rare issue where. It, at least kind of the view, the view of antitrust that kind of I'm spouting here, which is like a more aggressive hands-on view. Uh, you know, Ken Buck, the congressman from Colorado, who's speaking at this conference, is about to kind of give a speech on that matter as well. Well, he'll kind of talk through the conservative case for like a more robust antitrust. We actually have a lot of friends on the left in theory on this issue. So like Lena Kahn, who's a total progressive, I mean, like, like a far left lunatic in many ways. I'm sure she basically wants you and I in a gulag. She happened to actually write a fairly compelling Yale Law Journal note in 2017 called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox that I reviewed before I wrote that essay that I mentioned on Amazon. It was actually quite good. I actually agreed with a lot in that in that note. So this is a, this is a weird issue where there actually is kind of a Venn diagram overlap. And that it, antitrust, honestly, even more so than Section 230 is probably where I see the most possible areas for actual legislation to get through. The problem on Section 230 is that the kind of standard Republican talking point, which I I basically agree with, is is to statutorily amend Section 230 to basically um, make the immunity provision contingent upon a First Amendment standard. So you basically only get your moderation uh, immunized, your moderation decision immunized. If all first member protected speech is there on the platform, I think that's common sense. So basically, basically, conservatives, what I'm trying to say is they want more free speech on the big tech platforms. That's not what the progressives want. I mean, they want, the, they want the exact opposite. I mean, they're still talking about Russian collusion, you know, the Facebook ads from 2016. So I don't think there's actually a whole lot of Venn diagram overlap on Section 230. Everyone kind of hates it, but from totally different directions. Antitrust is actually, I think, one issue where, where there's actually potential, honestly, area of overlap there. I continue to be optimistic about that. I, you know, my good friend, Mike Davis, so I, I volunteer as um, among the titles I can't remember that I have. But possibly I, 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 I volunteer as a council policy advisor for my good friend, Mike Davis's anti-big tech shop called the Internet Accountability Project. Mike was pushing this hard. I mean, he was pushing really hard back in June, July. He was sending out all these email blasts like before the August recess, Congress, you know, do something on antitrust. So, I I tend to agree with Mike. Um, antitrust, I think, is a, is a, is one possible area. Common carrier regulation can I, can either come from the executive branch or from Congress. So, um, Senator Haslam from from Tennessee actually had a a a really nice piece of legislation last year i think he unveiled it, where he was kind of trying to legislate kind of a new approach to common care regulation but they also could do it regulatorily they also could kind of just go to like a
1: republican president
2: right i mean they could they could just kind of slap that same title ii 1934 communications act regulatory label that we applied to the phone companies you could you, you could probably do that through administrative fiat um or you could pass a new law that actually directly applies to big tech but um, I am cautiously optimistic on antitrust and, and common carry regulation, but I think our side is solely waking up to, to the threat. The most important thing here is the single most important thing that I think conservatives have to be thinking and talking about when it comes to the internet in particular. The problem is that none of this actually matters. None of this matters. If the cloud infrastructure on the internet is controlled by people who hate us, and what that really means is Amazon. That really means Amazon Web Services, you know, which kind of takes us full circle actually, because I actually happen to think antitrust is a good use for Amazon. There's no reason. There's no reason why the company that controls Amazon Web Services should also be, have this like monopoly when it comes to the consumer marketplace I mean, with delivery trucks. Amazon's a mess of a company. I'm as guilty as anyone for ordering Amazon products. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> I hate to admit that it's such an evil company in so many ways. Um, but we we desperately need to get people that are building cloud infrastructure, lest we be canceled from the entire internet. There are some companies, right? Forge is the best example of this, that are actually doing that right now. That is, I think, where we need to channel a lot of our kind of right-of-center Silicon Valley talent, is kind of getting that cloud infrastructure in place. Way above my pay grade. I'm not a computer science guy, to be honest with you, but we need to get more people that are invested in learning. Quite literally learning to code to get us cloud space on the internet, so that we are not going to be taken off the internet in its entirety ultimately.
1: Because you can literally be taken off Twitter for saying learning to code. Okay, Okay. so these are the these are the things then: antitrust, enforcement of existing antitrust law, common carriage, legislation, the public-private collusion that is already illegal, building this infrastructure of this cloud-based infrastructure and reforming Section 230, either legislatively or through the executive branch of the government, those five things, if we were, if a Republican administration or Republican Congress were able to accomplish that, would it change the big tech problem?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's a that's a pretty compelling suite of policies right there. I mean, I I think our problem would be greatly mitigated if if some combination of those things happened. You know, if I recall, did it, I think President Trump did something via executive order on Section 230 in his last year, I think, right? It was like May 2020. It was kind of buried because it was at the beginning of COVID. No one was really paying attention. But he actually did sign some, I, I think was a pretty good executive order on Section 230 back in May 2020. But Section 230 in particular really should ideally come from Congress.
1: Otherwise, it's just going to be a Republican does it, and a Democrat does it, and right. a Republican does it, and it's never going to be solved.
2: But you also, I mean, the courts can and should also construe this, you know, sprawling Section 230 immunity, uh, you know, as I'm saying, to be unconstitutional under existing doctrine. Um, so, the remedy there could come through the courts as well, but you know, a, a court decision could be overturned. So, Congress really would be the best fit for that particular. But look, to your question, I mean, like what you just outlined there—that that—that's a pretty compelling suite of policy remedies. The, the unfortunately, though, <laughs> no, the problem I think is even bigger than that. The problem is that this collapse of the of the public and the private distinction in general. I mean, you know, you you and I both know this, Liz. I mean, like you know, when you, I, I, I hate to say it so explicitly, but like when you look up the definition of fascism, okay, in like your high school, like political science, history textbooks, that's kind of what this is. And ironically speaking, it kind of reveals the lie as to the, you know, the left's shrieks of hysteria and their howling that conservatives are, are like the fascists, right? Donald Trump in 2020 on the campaign trail was railing against socialism. No fascist in his right mind would ever do that. Rather fascists historically, have talked about and actually done the actual full co-opting of the private sector to do the public sector's bidding. That is what the worst fascists in the 20th century, to a T, that's what they all did. So that is what I'm really, really worried about here. And the reason why I'm so worried about in particular is because their rhetoric is really, really, really getting close to that. Obviously Biden's speech in Philadelphia, so-called MAGA Republicans, but they're just putting it out in the open now. I mean, Kamala Harris did this recent interview with Chuck Todd, I think I made mean, the press, talking about, she, she, she was reminding Chuck Todd that the oath to the Constitution makes you kind of, um, you're valued to protect the Constitution against enemies, both foreign and domestic. And she kind of like verbally emphasized the domestic.
1: Like comparing 9-11 hijackers, the exactly. radical Islamist terrorists with exactly. Republicans who support Trump.
2: Right, exactly. right. So that mentality and that rhetoric combined with this co optation of what is 21st century public square, that's pretty dire. And that's why you know I'm wearing this T-shirt that my friend, you know, David Boy produced. I'm it, it says, "I know what time." Oh, it, know it is. Oh, I know what time it is. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, this is my friend David Boy Substack he has his week. But I think I think knowing what time it is on tech recognizes that what I just said there, that's really bad. I mean that that can get really dark really quickly, and like we, we just cannot have these intellectual discussions about Section Two Thirty anymore. We have to take action. Um, one way or the other. Right? We Legislatively really
1: or judicially. And yet, Republicans need to understand the time for simply calling for competition. Like, oh, compete with Facebook. That's not possible anymore. Right. Be a parlor. Right. And it's not a matter of, oh, private companies are allowed to discriminate against whoever they want. They can make whatever rules they want. They can block you for whatever reason they want. That's, not, that's simply not what's happening anymore because there is this public-private exactly. collusion, which means that you and I should actually have First Amendment protections on Twitter and on Facebook. We should be able to say whatever we want. And Twitter right. and Facebook shouldn't be allowed to censor us.
2: Right. No, and the reform to Section 230 that I'm talking about there, kind of, you know, um, making the immunity contingent on a First Amendment standard would do that. So Congress, I mean, that's just such a no-brainer to me. The problem, like I said, is, you know, the Democrats don't believe in the First Amendment. They don't really believe in the Constitution in general. They don't really believe in free speech anymore, right? So the Democrats, their, their vision of reforming Section 230 is not that. Their vision of reforming Section 230 is to make it harder for the platforms to moderate content because they're still so obsessed with the... You know, minuscule amounts of money that you know that uh, that happened on Facebook to kind of uh, get the Manchurian can. You know how it goes, right? Um, but again, the, the time for talk really, really is over. And uh, antitrust, I think in particular is like is, is the one remedy that we're talking about here that I think has the most potential for bipartisan overlap. But I, I'm still waiting to see it put into action more aggressively. But I, here's why well, I'm I was- also
1: a huge cynic, and I don't think that Republicans should. Count on or even invite collaboration with the Democrats at this point. If we have the White House and we have Congress, we should just do our thing because that's what the Democrats do.
2: I agree with that. No, I, I, The I,
1: age I, of bipartisanship, there's no virtue in compromise if what you're compromising are principles that make our nation great. Yeah,
2: and that's the, that's the, that's the famous line from Barry Goldwater's speech in 1964, right, that uh, Harry Jaffa actually himself penned. It was um, uh, moderation in pursuit of justice is no virtue or something yeah. like that, right? And, yeah, it's the same thought. Yeah. Um, so uh,
1: Before the age of big tech.
2: Right, exactly. Uh, you know, back when the only common carriers were like the phone companies and the and the, yeah. the, the railroad companies. But look, this really, this is the threat. Okay, like this collapse in the public and the private because of what we just talked about with kind of the history of 20th century fascism and just the increasing vitriol of the rhetoric from the other side and just their increasingly transparent urge to subjugate and dehumanize us. We 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 just have to do something. And like honestly, all these other issues. You know, inflation. Look, I, I inflation is bad right now, obviously, and, and no one no one likes inflation. But the magnitude of the threat from talking about some of these kind of you know less practical, less tangible kind of economic issues just pales in comparison to what's going on right here. So, I look at this as probably being the single biggest issue that we face. Um, but I, I I I am cautiously optimistic though, and like as but one example of that so you know I, i'm only 33 i have held like a bunch of titles but like one of my first kind of titles in a certain movement was actually i was a summer law clerk on senator mike lee's senate judiciary committee staff my first year of law school summer this was like eight and a half years ago now i guess right senator lee he, he's wonderful like, he's a great american patriot like a true like devout constitutionalist but back then in 2014 um he was the ranking member, I think, on, on the antitrust subcommittee. I think he's still involved with the antitrust, antitrust subcommittee on the San Judiciary Committee. Anyway, back then in 2014, he was so doctrinally kind of laissez-faire on antitrust that I'm not entirely sure that he, in theory, would have ever thought that there was like such thing as a merger that should not go through. Nowadays, Mike Lee has actually kind of teamed up, at least as recently as last year, with Chuck Grassi of Iowa. They have kind of a Section two thirty. Oh no, that's they, they, sorry. Well, Mike has, has been involved two thirty as well. But Lee and Grassley actually had an antitrust bill that wouldn't go as far as Josh Hawley. He's probably the most aggressive on this. But it, but 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 it, but it would be a dramatic improvement on the status quo. What what the Lee Grassley bill would do is it would statutorily codify Bob Bork's consumer welfare standard for antitrust in, into the into law. Because currently the consumer welfare standard is just Judge law. It's just kind of yeah, uh, what the judges do is not actually in, in the U.S. Code anywhere, so it was statutorily codified. That but they would take a very broad view of what consumer welfare entails. So under current judge-made law, the consumer welfare standard really just means lowest prices, full stop, end of story. The problem is, you know, as you know, is that consumer when, when you take that very narrow price-centric consumer welfare standard and you apply it to big tech. The paradigm entirely collapses because these services are free. Yeah. So, so of course, there's no way that just But what the league, Grassley legislation would do, and it's been a little while since since I reviewed this, but if I recall correctly, they would make sure that price, privacy, and all sorts of these other concerns the this, this statute would um, would codify that and it would require judges to kind of do this this really broad balancing test for the antitrust analysis. So all that to say, even when even Mike Lee is kind of moving in this direction, I, I'm really kind of optimistic about where kind of the center of gravity of the Republican Party is headed. But again, like, don't take it from me. I mean, just like, look at all the anger and frustration out there. I mean, this, you know, this Eric Schmidt thing was was a big deal. I mean, you know, he that's was a huge
1: deal. Yeah. And I think the American people are waking up. Like I said, I fully admit that I my views have changed on how we should handle big tech because I understand now the reality of what we're facing, and I didn't understand the reality of what it was that big tech was doing and who they were doing it with at the beginning. And when your information changes, your output changes. so right, no exactly. shame in changing your mind when- by the way,
2: that's a fundamentally conservative approach what you just said. I mean when when the information changes, your your view changes. That's kind of just like bread and butter empiricism. I mean, that is like right. Edmund Burke 101. It's like it's like looking at the world in less kind of dogmatic, ideological lens and kind of just empirically observing and be willing to adjust your policies or how things should go based on what is actually happening. I think that's profoundly conservative. So I, 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 I and I happen to agree with you.
1: Well, I think we should end right there on you calling me Edmund Burke. And that should be the last thought in everyone's (laughs) mind here at NatCon3, which is a, a, a conference of the Edmund Burke Foundation. So thank you for sitting down with me. This was great. Your work on this is great. It's hard to untangle all the big tech stuff, but when you do, we do have a course of action that we can take. Republicans should People, citizens, you and I, and everyone watching and listening to this should contact our elected representatives and tell them, you know, this is this is what you should do. This is what we hired you to do. And if we do that, and if Republicans listen to us after we elect them, then we will be able to solve this problem. It's not unfixable.
2: It's not unfixable. I mean I'm not I'm not promising that the problem's gonna go away tomorrow if we take like one remedy or two. But that suite of remedies that you outlined earlier, there were like four or five there, that was a very powerful potent combination. So
1: there you go. Well then the entire United States Congress should take note. (laughs) All right, guys, um, let me know what you think. If there's anything I missed, comment below this. Let me know what else we should force our Republican elected officials to do when it comes to big tech censorship of us. You can comment at Liz Wheeler show.com slash locals at the best way to get in touch with me. Liz Wheeler show.com slash locals. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is the Liz Wheeler show.